going on guys michael here energy 360 network by honor i'm excited to be bringing you this interview with gregory wrightstone but before we do that i need to do some clerical work please if you're not subscribed to the digital closing belt podcast you can do that on www.oilandgas360.com you can sign up for the email there you can also subscribe to our podcast at itunes spotify youtube wherever you get your um podcast you can find us there please we would appreciate all of the people who reach out and said they've enjoyed the show and we'll continue to crank out our two shows a week for our long format obviously every day you can find us on the digital closing bell email where you have the digital ticker, which is awesome. You can also find all the Energy 360 Network interviews on oilandgas360.com. It is the place for the oil and gas thought leaders. We've talked to so many different people, Tenex Technologies, Adam Mateen Energy, and Tisha Schuler, which is an awesome interview with one of the top ESG people in the field. I highly recommend you listen to that interview. And upcoming right now, we have an awesome interview with Gregory Wrightson, who's the author of the best-selling book, Inconvenient Facts of Science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. He is a geologist with over 35 years of experience and has a master's degree from University um, of West Virginia. And really what he did was when he retired, he, he, he just started looking into a lot of some of the facts surrounding climate and what is going on right now. And he, really what he did was he discovered that there's a host of things that the media is telling us that just aren't true. And he wrote this book, Inconvenient Facts, that really lays out what's going on, what, what, what you're hearing, and what the actual science is. It's an awesome interview. And I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Stu, who's going to kick us off. You're coming from the East Coast, aren't you? Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, we just had a snowstorm. It's it, on April 20, 21st here, so which was unusual. Uh, still, we got below below freezing last evening. So it's we've had an unusually cold April. So it's been it's been that pesky global warming is. I'm I'm ready for it to have an onset of it pretty soon. Yeah, it's it's and what's ironic, it's been really warm in Denver, uh, but we did have a snowstorm about two weeks ago. But um, really excited for this this interview and to get into more of your background in your book, specifically on and specifically some of this climate science stuff. But before we do that, I really just want to give the the listeners an idea. Go over your background a little bit and, and sort of how you got in, in, into what you're doing. Yeah, I, I my, my my career has been in, as a petroleum geologist. Uh, Eastern Section President of the AAPG, American Association of Petroleum Geologists, three-time president of the Pittsburgh Association of Petroleum Geologists. So I, I got in. So why did I go into climate change? It was a personal search for the truth. Mm-hmm. And it was that search for the truth. Because just like you and many of the viewers of this, we're told so many different things, aren't we? It's, it's too cold. It's not cold enough. There's too much rain. There's not enough rain. There's too much snow. You know, it goes on and on. And I, I knew some of what we were being told about climate change, particularly o- ocean acidification, was just incorrect. I suspected other things were. So I didn't set out to write a book. What I did was do this personal search for the truth about climate change. In fact, frankly, what I found was shocking. It angered me. I, I found that much of what we're being told is just incorrect. We're frankly, being lied to about a lot of these things. Not that climate change isn't happening. Of course it is. We're in a 300-year warming trend. It started in the late 17th century, long before the first uh, Model T rolled off the plant uh, floor. Uh, so we, 250 of those years of, of 300 years plus of warming had to have been entirely naturally driven. And what we're being told to accept is that, oh, well, 200, yeah, it's been warming since 1600, but all that changed in the middle of the 20th century. And, and now it's being driven by man's uh, 
excesses in man's uh, combustion of, of fossil fuels. Um, so I brought, I brought this geologic perspective, which was my, my, I look at things in the long term, which really is, is avoided by many in the man-made catastrophic warming community. They don't look at the long term. They don't want you to do that. They just just focus on the last twenty or thirty or fifty years. That's what that's what's important. Yeah. And oh, it's not. No, it's not. And and so what I I also did. I I've got a bookshelf over here with full of just about every climate change book known to man, and and they're very good. Most of these are really really good, but it's difficult for the normal non scientist mm -hmm. to actually read it, pick it up, understand it. And because half the books I've got, I have not even read. I've not completed because they're it's six or seven pages of text and a black and white chart. So my goal was to create a book for the regular Joe and Jane on the street. That's a non-scientist. It's not dumbed down. I didn't want it dumbed down. I want it to be science and fact-based, mm -hmm. which it is. And but I wanted something that people would actually read. And and uh, I'll just tell you a story. I was given a. a a talk at the Romney Tea Party in Romney, West Virginia. This was right after publication. And the guy putting the screen up, he says, oh, Mr. Wrightstone, I just loved your book. And I said, really? He says, oh, he says, yeah. And he, he had one of these, you know, shirt cut off at the, at the armpits. And uh, he says, it was the first book I've read since high school. Really? And I said, at that point, that's when I said, wow. I think I've succeeded in writing a book that the regular person can actually read, understand, and digest. And and so we've been, well, for the most part, uh, it's been uh, a year and a half now that the book has been close to number one, if not number one bestseller uh, on Amazon in several categories. We're dropped down a little bit now. Um, well, a couple of things there. One, the, the, the organic growth that you have is, is extremely un unbelievable. And I think that that's a testament to A, your writing style and B, the information that you're giving people. And, and before I kick it over to Stu and let him kind of, he, he's, he's got a bunch of questions specifically around your book and, and this more climate stuff. You know, really, you, you, took a, you, you took an idea that I don't think a lot of people do. They start with a bias and work backwards. How do I fill in facts that fit what I already think is going on? Where you started with the facts and just work backwards. What does that tell me? And I think that's different and why I think you've had so much success in this space because they're, you know, far and few between. So I, I just give you props to you. I think it's a, a, a novel thing what you've done. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been, it's been gratifying. And, and it's, it's a, it's a testament to all the people that actually purchased the book because they're the ones that are telling their friends. They say, Hey, you got to get this. And you've turned it into a mobile app. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you have a mobile app, Inconvenient Facts on the app store. That's basically, it takes all the figures that you have in your book and you can you have them there either for free. You see some ads or you can have a slight paid version, get rid of them. That's cool too. Yeah. The app's really valuable. That way you can have, you can have that information that's in the book in the, in the palm of your hand. You can't carry the book with you all the time. Yeah. Um, but that way, if you're right, dinner or out to dinner once the restaurant's open your idiot nephew billy tells you polar bears are going extinct you can hold this up and go wait a minute billy here's fact number 52 60 years of polar bear population billy and and, and he goes wait a minute uh uncle michael well, well what's the source and and everything's fully sourced and referenced so that's the power of having this the smartphone app in the palm of your hand. I, as I, when I was traveling around the country, I used that in the airports, restaurants, uh, and it's, it really helps in communicating 
uh, what you're trying to tell people. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fabulous. Uh, I'm going to go down. I missed that. I apologize. I should have had that. And I'm downloading after this because I have so many conversations and thank you for your background. Uh, we are so thrilled you're here today. And uh, when reviewing your book and going through it, I absolutely love the way that you did step it out into the facts. Uh, inconvenient fact number one, two, three, four, and then the data. Everything's referenced in the book, and I check some of the references as well. And I think it starts out trying to go to inconvenient fact number 14. You were talking about it's been going on for a long time. Temperatures have changed for 800,000 years. It wasn't us. Um, the Ice Age. Tell us a little bit about your Ice Age uh, information on that. Did you get the ice information from core samples on the? Yes, yes. The, the 800,000 years references uh, data from ice core samples from Antarctica. Uh, the other ice cores come from Greenland. They only go back, I think, 150,000 years at Greenland data. But the Greenland data is very impactful. Uh, uh, but So the 800,000 years, we have both CO2 and temperature histories. And what we find are these 100,000-year cycles that are of temperature uh, that are driven, and CO2, that are driven by what are called the Milankovitch cycles. These are the, the Earth's wobble, the eccentricity of the orbit, things like that. They're driving really big temperature changes the, as we go in and out of the glacier. We're in, a, we're in an interglacial period now. We've been in an interglacial period for oh, 10 or 11,000 years. And what is, I guess, you know, I'm not necessarily a geologist, but someone who's not a geologist like yourself, what is, describe an interglacial period. Yeah, the, the interglacial period would be, uh, we go through about, let's just say, 85, 90,000 years of glacial advances that, of course, covered okay. all of Canada and down into much of the United States. Uh, it was in the interglacial period. That's the warming period where the glaciers retreat. Oh, okay, okay. So we're, we're in this, thankfully, this uh, an interglacial warming period. Uh, it would be quite unwelcome if, if that ended and the glaciers advanced once again. Um, if that occurred, we're probably, Donald Trump's probably building the border or the wall on the wrong border because every single Canadian's going to be heading south because they, they don't want to live under hundreds of feet of ice and snow. Um, so this, this is a period, I like to look at, and I, a lot in the book, if you've looked at it, the last 10,000 years is very impactful. That dates from the time of the, of the end of the last glacial advances. And, and looking at that, it's really, really important. And my next book that I'm, I'm working on right now will also deal more involved with this. The notion, I've identified two huge things in the climate change debate. Number one, we're being told that our temperatures today are unusual and unprecedented over thousands of years. If that's the case, if our temperatures today are unusual and unprecedented, and that's a strong argument in case in support of CO2 driven warming mm -hmm. because we're burning fossil fuels and adding CO2. But if it's not, if we look at thousands of years of data and find that the warming trend we're in, we're in right now looks a lot like what I find were nine previous warming periods. Well, then that's a strong argument that it's not CO2 that's dominating uh, temperature changes, but rather it's the, uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the same natural forces, cyclical natural forces that have been warming and, 
and cooling of the earth since the dawn of time. Uh, so, and we look at that and there's other ways we can look at this too. We see the other warming periods. The most recent ones were the, the Roman warm period, which is the time of Christ. And then the medieval warm period, which is the, mid, the high middle ages. Uh, when you think of that Magna Carta, the great, mm-hmm. uh, great middle ages. And just opposite from what we're being told, we're being told, aren't we, that oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we can't let it get a degree and a half warmer, we're all going to die, and we're going to have famine and heat waves, and it's going to be really bad. But if we look through history, and and it's fascinating, when we look through combined climate history with human history, there's a strong correlation between the rise and fall of temperature and the rise and fall of civilizations. When it was warming, these other warm periods, the Earth's ecosystems thrived and prospered and humanity benefited. Each one of the warming periods, we had bountiful harvests, food was plentiful. And what that allowed people to do, instead of grubbing and worrying about feeding their family next week or next year, they had time to, to dink, tinker, to dream, to invent, to sculpt. And we saw great civilizations rose up during those warm periods. It was the intervening cold periods that were horrific, horrific. They were awful. And those, those cold periods went by the names of things like the Greek Dark Ages, the Dark Ages. The middle, the last one we had was the Little Ice Age. Uh, and, and food crop, each one of these cold advances are accompanied by crop failure, famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. Uh, the last one, the Little Ice Age, half the population of Iceland perished. Of course, we know the Vikings could, couldn't survive on Greenland. Uh, it's not that as much as a third of the entire world's population, Earth's population of humans, uh, perished during that cold period. And it's, again, just think about it. It's just opposite of what we're being told. Yeah. We're being told, oh, fear the heat, fear the heat. No, no, welcome the heat. And my big story, when I, I talk to people, I'm, I'm a huge, huge proponent of the many benefits of rising temperatures and increasing CO2. Uh, just about... Every metric you look at, it's getting better. Earth's ecosystems, uh, you know, deserts are shrinking. They're not growing. We're growing more and more crops. Uh, and, and, you know, with, with warming temperatures, we see a lengthening of growing seasons. The killing frost and mm-hmm. earlier in the spring and arrive later in the fall. You can get more plantings in. And then we have a huge benefit of, of increasing CO2 fertilization effect with increasing CO2. In the book, I capture that uh, Dr. Craig Gidso and his team, uh, according to their studies, great chart we've got in the book, he looked at 95% of the crops on which we rely. And he found that a 300 part per million increase of CO2 could lead to a 46% increase of crop growth. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a, a story that we're, what, we're, what they're saying in demonizing CO2 is actually helping to feed the planet and feed the hungry. That's a good story. That's a good thing. It, it is. Uh, and in fact, your chart, I'm looking at it right now and it is, uh, oh, fact-based. Sorry about that. Um, sorry. Um, I'm looking at the chart also from uh, normalized difference of vegetation index. Uh, that tells the whole story about the green difference that's coming along. Um, yeah, that, that should be, I, I've often stated the greening of the earth, it should be a front page story on the New York Times. It's, it's possibly the, 
the biggest story of the late 20th and early 21st century. And what we have is, according to NASA, this is NASA saying it, not Greg Wrightstone. NASA tells us that up to 50% of the Earth is what they call greening, and that means increasing vegetation. Less than 4% of the Earth is what they call browning or loss of vegetation. That's a good trade-off. I'll take that any day of the week. And what we find, too, uh, it's the formerly arid areas, the deserts, uh, are greening a lot of these areas. It's uh, the Southern Sahara is probably the best example. It's called the Sahel. 300,000 square kilometers of the Sahel are turning, a former desert, are turning into a lush grassland. People are moving back into these areas, gazelles, even amphibians. They're growing crops in former desert. No, who, who knows that? Nobody. They don't talk about it. They don't want you to know. We see the same thing in India, arid areas of China and Australia. Uh, and and it's, a, it's just a, a tremendous, tremendous story of an yeah. earth that's thriving and prospering and greening. As someone who's, you know, was probably the most recently in college between the, the three of us here, you hear none of that. You hear none of that. So even it's, 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 it's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting, I, 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 if I can, yeah. I've had some unique opportunities over the last several months. I debated a professor at Cornell mm-hmm. up at the hotbed of Ithaca, New York, of, of liberal thought. Uh, he thought he was going to wipe the floor with me. We had 180 students there in the forensics and debate class, and they had their eyes open. They heard things from me that they'd never heard before. Uh, and I gave away free books to all the students that wanted one. We gave 120 books out. And, yeah. But the deal was, if you're going to take it, you got to read it. You know, exactly. give it to well, speaking along that, like, like one of the things that really just opened my eyes was, you know, you have your one chart that's how much temperature aversion would we would happen if we actually eliminated 100% of CO2. And it's fascinating because it's, oh, it's for a, the United States, it's by 20, if you at least, you know, according to your chart, 100% of U.S. emission reduction by 2050, 0.041%. Yeah, that was, and I debated another guy, Dr. James Casting from Penn State over in Columbus, Ohio in November. And it, I, I stated that at the end of our discussion, I, I brought that up. He goes, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he didn't dispute it. He said, yeah, that's true. Four hundredths of a degree centigrade by 2050 if we reduce all of our CO2. Really? How many jobs lost is that worth? Yeah, but I think didn't, that's... He didn't, he didn't dispute it. What, what he said, well... Yes, you're right, but we need to all work together. This is a global problem. We need to get India and China on board. India and China are not going to get on board. That's their a whole plans, other thing, yes. Their plans are building coal-fired plants, you know, we, as far in the future as you can see. And, and, it's, and it's what's interesting, the three main players with CO2 emissions in the, in the world, Donald Trump with the United States, President Xi in China, and Prime Minister Modi in India, all three of those gentlemen, under, they get what we need with energy. We need reliable, abundant, affordable energy. Uh, with China, they, they're very, pretty much up front, we want a booming economy. We need to, get, we need to charge forward. Prime Minister Modi, uh, on the other hand, I, 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 he's a good man. His intentions, I think, are to help his people. They've got 600 million people living in generational, just horrible poverty. If you've never been there, you don't understand it. Maybe you have, I've been there. Uh, it's it's terrible. And he wants to lift his people up out of poverty. 
and he's going to do that by providing uh, rural electrification, um, for example. And, and then before I go on to that, but the other third player is Donald Trump. Now, what he wants to do, in my opinion, he wants to prevent harm, first do no harm. And he doesn't want to impede our economy or slow it down by imposing artificial, uh, ar artificially increasing energy costs to everybody, which is what the goal of the Green New Deal is. The Green New Deal, their goal is to increase all electro uh, energy costs from fossil fuels so that their uh, wind and solar projects become more economic. Um, so, but I was going to say, just if I can, just it, it, when we look at India, they, they in, in Africa, a lot of people, uh, there are 4 million people that die in early death due to emphysema and lung con conditions because they're cooking over wood and dried dung in their homes. Yeah. They're inhaling this. We could, those are 4 million lives that could easily be saved by providing either electricity from fossil fuel fired electricity. They can provide propane, compressed natural gas. There's things that we could do. Those, those 4 million lives are oh, easily saved quickly. I, I don't want to sidetrack us, but I have my, my, my dad happened to be born in Africa and I've been to Tanzania into some of these villages where you walk in, talk about needing a face mask in today's time because there's smoke. They've got fires in their home that is, is just re-emanating because that's how they have to see. That's how they have to cook. It's unbelievable. And I think, you know, when you take that picture in mind, that 4 million number can be wiped out very quickly with what you're talking about. Absolutely. And, and also, um, oh, it's not glaucoma, but the, the cataracts are, are severe. I'm just looking the other day, there was a 38-year-old woman who had just, she was practically blind and some missionaries wherever they did the cataract surgery because she's cooking over dry dung. And, and again, these people, we hear the Pope talking about, uh, about this and how we need to uh, enfor enact the Green New Deal. No, we don't. Uh, he, you know, there's, there's his, his policies will hurt those that he wants to help the most. Mm -hmm. They will hurt the poor because what that is is really a regressive taxation system. And around the, by regressive, I mean it yeah. harms the poorest among us the most. Exactly. That's the it's key. Stu, you want to hop in? Yeah, that brings up two questions. And uh, in your inconvenient fact number 31, Michael Crichton kind of says there's no such thing as conscious science if it's, oh, excuse me, consensus. If it's consensus, it's not science. If it's science, it's not consensus. There's two things. How, do, how does the story get out about poverty, energy, and uh, also uh, Warren Buffett said in, I believe it was 2015, the only reason to put in a wind farm is because of taxes. So there's an economic issue, but there's also a, a communication issue. What do you think we've got to do as a population to get the communication problem solved? Because the media is really geared up to try to not put the two together, energy and poverty and economics. What are your thoughts on trying to go forward with that? Well, the, the media is definitely dominated by this this climate cabal of alarmists, uh, and it's going to get worse. Look for it to get. My most recent commentary was dealing on this. Uh, there was a webinar on April second of this year uh, where they had four of the top climate alarmists in the world that talked about how how do we message climate change uh, to using the media to the population and it was a fascinating trip down the rabbit hole of, of climate change alarmism basically they need to get 
the editor's minds right. We need to get, we need to have them communicate uh, the existential threat that's imminent. And, and it was fascinating. A lot of what they talked about this, they talked about in the, in the era of COVID-19, they talked about distancing. And with COVID-19, when it was over in Wuhan, we weren't that scared. It was, oh, it's their problem. But then it got closer and closer. And that's when we started getting scared. And finally, it's on our doorstep and it's here and we're terrified. And so this is this, this and when it comes to climate change, they talked about distancing is that it's something that's going to occur many decades in the future and doesn't really. And so what they want to do is they said what we need to do and have the media do is present how immediate of a threat this is. We need to show them how all the population, how they're being affected today by climate change. Uh, and we, we're going to see that coming up. There was a part in the webinar. I was, they were, they were all, they were all but rubbing their hands together in glee. Just, you know, they were talking about, oh, this summer, one woman said, we're going to have a huge increase in, in hurricanes. We have to, uh, you know, they're excited about these disasters. They are. It's, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, Sad sort of switching, you know, what you talked about bringing up the virus, how do you see this current, you know, pandemic state that we're in? Um, how do you see that affecting the climate change movement? Do you see this as an opportunity for them? Do you see this as a chance where they're going to have to, you know, I mean, energy's oils, oil's cheap now, it's about 17 bucks. So in terms of having access to it, I don't know if that, but do you see them using this period at all to, 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 to do some things? Yeah, they're scared. They're scared because, and a couple things. Number one, their models. People are going, wait a minute. You were, you were telling us these models were good and we need to shut the country down because these models are going to tell us that 2 million people are going to die and it's not like the flu. Uh, and, and I'm not going to argue that point, but it's, it's not 1918 all over mm -hmm. again. And, and there's, so there, that's one part. Their models have been exposed, and we see that the climate models, just like the COVID-19 models, over-predict warming as the models for COVID-19 over-predicted death. Uh, and we're also seeing that we've just taken trillions of dollars out of the, out of the economies of yeah. the world. And that money, they needed that money to impose their expensive climate change agenda. We don't have it anymore. We just don't have it. People aren't going to put up with it. And, and they're not going to put up with, and again, it's going to be in an era of really low fossil fuel costs. Uh, there's, it's going to be hard for wind and solar to compete. If we just look, what's fascinating here in Pennsylvania, where I'm, call, I'm calling from Pittsburgh, um, we have in Pennsylvania, we have what's called the Pennsylvania Game Commission, and they control millions of acres of forest. Uh, and the Game Commission last year voted to ban all wind turbine projects. Now bear in mind, they control a lot of these big ridges that are really, uh, really good, would be good for industrial scale wind, wind projects. They banned, the eight, eight person panel voted unanimously to ban any wind turbine projects in Pennsylvania on their properties because of it, it, it was contrary to their, uh, I, their stated mission, which was to preserve, uh, endangered species, preserve wildlife. And, and that's just a great example of, of eight guys and a woman uh, that voted unanimously to ban it because they, they just don't like it. You should hear some of these guys in there. And when they were talking, they, they hated these people. They lived, a couple of these guys lived near wind mm -hmm. projects and just 
Oh, they, they well, just hate. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wind farms, those, they kill how many birds a year? The wildlife that gets destroyed by, by these wind farms being there. And don't they, I, I think they also have motors in them to help spin these things. Like you have some, you have to pipe in electricity just to get these things going in order to, I mean, that could be wrong. I don't know about that storage. You also have power storage. You also have those blades that are not recyclable. You've got graveyards of blades that are now becoming ecological <laughs> problems and nightmares. You have all, you know, this whole check mark. Then you have the electrical storage, which has all of the uh, minerals coming out of China, which is CO2, which is why you have a Tesla car that has got more CO pounds of CO2 going into the environment. It's a mess as far as communication goes. Right, right. They don't talk about the front end or the back end, the front end being the, the rare earth minerals. Just, just Google two words, cobalt and Congo, and you'll learn about the 12-year-old boys that are being used to mine cobalt in the Congo. Just two words. That's all you got to do. And, and, and we have Greta Thunberg. She says, oh, you know, we're, uh, how dare you? You've taken my childhood. Well, listen, Greta. Go look at those those 12-year-old boys in the Congo. Who's taking their, you know, for your precious Tesla and your solar panels? Uh, now, uh, it's, it, it's bad. Uh, there's, you know, this, the solar industry, they, they need these subsidies to, to, to survive and compete. And the money's just not going to be there. Do you, do you see along that, do you see any of, you know, a, you know, obviously the free markets, I think we all assume here should let this play. Do you see an environment in which if the free markets are allowed to play out that, that some of these renewables can even compete? Yeah. I'm not an economics guy. I, I don't think so. I read, okay. you know, I read a lot about it. I, I don't want to get, I don't want to get over my skis and talk about things I, I'm not an expert on. But, but it sure doesn't look like that to me. Um, why else would they be subsidizing these things mm -hmm. if they could stand on their own two feet? You wouldn't need a subsidy to do it, but they do. They do and, uh, and, and it just, it, it's, it's it boggles the imagination, you know, boggles my mind that, that we're even having this conversation about uh, going away from, from affordable, reliable, abundant energy. Uh, that's what we should be looking at. And, and I, I, I just appreciate all the work that you put into this and the facts. Your book, uh, to me, was a very good read. Uh, I enjoyed it uh, from a standpoint that uh, it gave me the facts. Uh, it's not an opinion piece. It's, oh, by the way, it's not a fluff piece. Um, and you're not there in this book to say, wait a minute, this is my opinion. That I have a lot of respect for. What are you going to talk about in your next book? What do you see the plans coming out on your next topics? Yeah, well, I've identified the two main, we talked a little bit about this before. One of the main issues is unusual and unprecedented warming. Uh, there's a lot of dispute on both sides. There, uh, the Michael Mann contingent says, well, we had 1900 years of gradually declining temperature. And then we started adding CO2 and it sky, temperature skyrocketed. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, uh, scientific evidence, that uh, from other methods. He relied mainly on tree ring data to come up with his his analysis, which is flawed. Uh, I'm not. We don't. We need to go into it. So my exploration will be. I think what I'm going to be doing. It, it's it's a lot of work. If we look, we talked a little bit about this, looking through human relating human history 
to temperature history and, and the many benefits. And we can also prove that temperatures were warmer during the Roman warm period, during the medieval warm period than they are today. And that's really the key. If they were warmer back then than they are today, it cuts their legs out from under the argument. So that, that's one. Well, for, for example, they were growing citrus in the north of England near Hadrian's Wall. Uh, they were growing a crop called millet in the Scandinavian countries. It can only be grown in tropical and semi-tropical areas. Things like that. People understand when you tell them that. They go, oh, well, yeah, it must have been warmer. Uh, we're, glaciers are receding. You know what they're doing? As the glaciers are receding right now, they're uncovering fully grown mature forests. Well, think about that. These, and, and archaeological, these, well, it had to have been warmer at that point to have a mature forest or to have, you know, civilizations and towns underneath the glaciers. Uh, the other part of this, too, is something that's hardly ever talked about, and that, that's the benefits of a modest rise in temperature combined with increasing CO2. And it's not even close. It's, uh, so this, the second half of my book, as you know, in the first, in my first book, I, I broke it into two sections. One was the science and the facts of CO2 and temperature. And we marched through, through time looking at that. And then the second half of the book was dealing with our, with these, uh, what I call the climate apocalypse events. And, mm -hmm. and in this book, we'll look at the, at the human history in the first half. And then the second half I'm, I'm planning, I'll, I'll be looking at uh, just charts, just showing how much better it's getting, uh, showing various crop growth related to temperature and CO2 and things like that. And just, we can do that in chart form to show people just about by every metric, life and ecosystems are improving. And, and yeah, so it's, and I, I get, I get anger at, it's some of these lies that are, I, I just get so angry. The, the misuse and abuse of the scientific process, it's unacceptable. Uh, these, these scientists will be, be called on the carpet, hopefully at some point in the future. A great example, I'm not sure how, many time, how much time we have here, but. Uh, we're, we're cutting it close here as far as. Time. Okay, well, we're going, to, we're going to talk about the. We, I am so excited to get to talk to you and hear you because there is the balance of poverty energy and the story going out and it's it's just that mix because uh, i firmly believe that there is a balance of economic power that works i believe in nuclear power i believe that there is a place for solar there is a place because that technology needs to change but it's economics i mean it's poverty and it's health of people that should be number one i you know well, let i me, just really appreciate okay, well, before we end, I want to tell you what my philosophy is. Mm, my philosophy okay. is we should use all of Earth's resources for the betterment of mankind and do it as good stewards. Bam. That's crazy. That's crazy. Woo. Bam. <laughs> that That's is awesome. Uh, let's put that quote out there because that is exactly what I believe. Thank you. Well said. One sentence. That's all we need. Who can disagree um, with that? You'd be surprised how many. That's that. Yeah, and I, that's crazy that people would disagree with that. And and you know we are about out of time here. Before we let you go, we talk about shameless plugs on this show a lot. So you can give a shameless plug for your book, what you're doing, and uh, what you have going on. Yeah, so that's my book. Whoa, it's going bizarro on me. Inconvenient facts. Uh, we've got a great website, inconvenientfacts.xyz. It's getting redone. Uh, it's going to look great. Yeah, thank you, Michael. 
And uh, so we're going to have, and I'm going to have a, a merchandise section there. I've got some cool iHeart CO2 t-shirts and uh, the bumper sticker on the back of my SUVs. Uh, you, you, you'll be getting your bumper stickers maybe today or tomorrow, Michael. Awesome. Uh, but I, I love CO2 merchandise because I do. I really love CO2 and you should too. And so the, the like, what a messaging. Yeah, the app, the smartphone app, go to the App Store, Google Play, and search for Inconvenient Facts. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you guys. And again, thank you for joining us, Gregory. And uh, we'll let you guys go ahead and get back to work. Thank you for checking out the Energy 360 Network. We'll see you guys next time.